I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to be looking at the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to begin with the 30th verse and read through the 36th verse. And this passage will serve as the basis for the morning message. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. I invite you to follow in whichever version of the Bible you have with you today. John 8, verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Fast forward six months in the life of Christ. He is before the proconsul Pontius Pilate. It's the day that he would meet his end, his end on a shameful cross. And this is the question which Pilate, the representative of Caesar, asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, and I think he probably was rather deliberate in the way he said it. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And then Pilate said, rather eagerly, I would imagine, so you are a king. And Jesus said, you correctly say that I am a king. For this I was born And for this I have come to the world to testify about the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, Jesus said, hears my voice. And then Pilate speaks once more in the conversation by asking the question, what is truth? Truth personified was standing in front of him when he said that. What is truth? Pilate's not the last person who's asked that question. Postmoderns don't even ask the question anymore because they believe that there is no way to know truth. In fact, they believe there's no such thing as truth. Every man or woman becomes his or her own standard of what is true. The mantra of the postmodern is there is no absolute truth, and in sowing that blows his or her cover in making an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Of course, I've already mentioned Jesus is the personification of the truth. And later in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the truth. In the introduction to the Gospel of John, the Gospel writer says this about Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Jesus is not simply sort of truth. He is fully truth. Jesus made the comment in John 17, 17, to the Father, your word is truth. We have the truth in the person of Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit of God, and in the word of God. We have the truth. What's at stake in our knowing the truth? Well, there's much at stake. Our freedom is at stake because unless we know the truth, we will not be free. Isn't that what Jesus says in so many words in this passage of Scripture? If you want to be free, you must know the truth. Freedom in the classical sense and really in the biblical sense is the power to do that which we know is right. That's truth in its most basic meaning. Today, truth has come to the point where it's seen as my right to do what satisfies me without regard for you or for God or anybody else. That's what truth has come to today. That's what freedom has come to be today. Perhaps you're familiar with the fact that shortly after the revolution that led to the formation of the United States of America concluded, in 1789, a revolution broke out in the nation of France. The motto was liberty, equality, and fraternity. Noble ideas, of course. Those very similar to the ideals which led to our own country's formation. Years after the conclusion of that revolution, it lasted ten years. It was a bloody civil war, really. And it was not a good outcome. Nothing like what happened here in the United States happened in France. There was a political scientist of some note in France who was born in the early 1800s. In 1835, he published a book entitled On Democracy in America. It was based on a visit which he had made, a rather lengthy visit. He wanted to come to the United States of America and see for himself what was the thing that distinguished American democracy from the democracy of France, which was really in some ways a sham. And he wrote that book. I'd like to read three quotations from the book. He said, in France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. Religion in America must be regarded as the foremost of the political institutions of that country. For it does not impart a taste for freedom It facilitates the use of it. In other words, what he was saying is the role of the church, the most influential influence on the nation, the role of the church was to be the conscience of America, to be the prophet of America, to speak to America and speak the word of God to America, which is true, to help people in our country to have 
correction and adjustment, for correction and adjustment were badly in need. As we quoted this great verse from the book of First Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, then I will forgive their sin, and then I will heal their land. Our nation is badly in need of being healed. And it's our responsibility. I'm not talking about Democrats, Libertarians, and Republicans here. I'm talking about Christians here. The healing of our land depends upon churches like ours, filled with people like us who do love God through Jesus Christ to do exactly what God told the people of Israel to do. To humble ourselves before God. To pray. To seek His face. Not seek what He can do for us, but to seek Him for Himself. And to turn from our wicked ways. To look how we have distorted what real freedom is and we have adopted the mentality of our culture that freedom is what satisfies my longing regardless of what God says or how it impacts other people. We must be men and women who are men and women who rely upon the Lord. And then the promise is, I will hear their prayer. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. God has placed the church of Jesus Christ in this nation. And not just this nation. All over the world. Every country in the world that you and I could visit today would have some representation of the body of Christ. And He has placed all of us in our particular countries for the purpose of being salt and light in order for the gospel to do its work. The gospel changes nations. If you're familiar with the French Revolution in that era in Europe, you're also aware of the fact that the same problems which France faced were being faced in Great Britain across the English Channel. Same problems. Great Britain was ripe for a revolution But something happened in Great Britain that did not happen in France. Believers in Jesus Christ took this passage from Chronicles seriously. They got before the Lord. And what could have been a huge disaster became a great awakening of the Spirit of God in that nation. Changing it. Glorifying God in it. That's what God has called us to do as a church in this nation. One final quote from de Tocqueville. I sought for the key to the greatness and genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields and boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce, in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in her Democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because America is good. 
And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. The writer of the Psalms in Psalm 118 says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There is no government leader who will be able to do what the church of Jesus Christ can do if we understand who we are. To change this world. Beginning right where we are. And it will be a revolution of epic proportion. Maybe another great awakening. There has not been a significant worldwide great awakening over the last century that has spread all over the world. And it could begin here or in any other church which takes its role seriously in this regard. What's at stake? Our freedom is at stake. That's what's at stake. This passage of Scripture speaks of the condition of slaves, a special category of slaves, slaves to sin. The New Testament church, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or you read the books of Colossians and Ephesians, if you read the book of Philemon, what you discover is the church of Jesus Christ from the get-go was full of slaves who had come to know Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Word of God says that the Lord's slave is the Lord's freedman. In other words, people can be free in any setting in which they find themselves if they know Jesus Christ. It's for freedom that we have been set free. And by the way, that freedom is not a freedom to do whatever we want to do. A lot of Christians have that mentality. We're free to do whatever we want to do. I beg your pardon. We've been set free to do that which we could never have done until we had been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that is to please God. And therein lies the place of freedom and pleasing the Lord. A slave situation in the New Testament era was a difficult situation, to say the least. According to the best estimates that have been made by people who have studied the demographics of first century Rome and the Roman Empire, there probably were about five million inhabitants of the Roman Empire. That doesn't sound like a lot of folks, does it? We could go to the DFW area, we go to Houston, and both of those cities exceed that here in our own state. There are many cities all over our country which are larger. Those same demographers say that probably 35 to 40 percent of all the population of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. That would equate to about one and a half to one and three quarters million slaves. There were bunches of slaves. They had no rights legally. They were people whose masters could administer corporal punishment, even torture, yes, and even death. Legally, because they owned the slaves. And these slaves in the first century had a glimmer of hope for freedom. And that freedom was rooted in the fact that a slave could be set free legally if his 
master or her master so chose to do so. Cicero, that name is familiar to many of you. He was a leading figure in the intellectual community of Rome and Rome's history. He had a secretary named Tyro, and he set Tyro free and gave him a stipend for the rest of his life. And Tyro continued to do his excellent work. A person could be set free if he were given or she were given freedom by his or her owner. A person could be set free if some friend or acquaintance had saved enough money to pay for the freedom by buying the freedom, striking a deal with the owner of a particular slave, and that slave could have been set free. Mind you, this was the exception rather than the rule. But Jesus says something that really aggravates his audience here about this matter. He says in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Anybody ever commits sin? Who's in the room? If you have, you know when you sinned, who was your master? It was sin. In the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 19, Peter writes these words, A man is a slave of whatever has mastered him. Have you been a slave to drink? A slave to drugs? A slave to a tongue? We saw last week, which is a fire and the misuse of the tongue. Have you been a slave to your sexual appetites? Have you been a person who understands that Everyone who lives a lifestyle of sin, that's what the word commit really means. It's a continual lifestyle is the idea. Such people are slaves to sin. They're mastered by it, controlled by it. I wonder if there's anyone here besides me has had a time in your life when you were wrestling with a particular sin and you begged God to take it away. And before you knew it, you were doing it again. Anybody ever do that? Well... The good news for us is that we have a God who specializes in taking our sins and throwing them into the depths of the sea and removing them from us as far as the east is from the west if we repent of our sins and we truly give Him control of our lives. A slave situation, whether it was in the 1st century A.D. or the 21st century A.D., is not a good situation. And the greatest taskmaster, the worst master of all, is the master of sin in our lives. Let's talk now, in the remaining time, about a slave's liberation. Jesus speaks about the liberating of slaves in this passage of Scripture. He says, for instance, in verse 36, if therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If you go back up to verse 31, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The Son will make you free. The personification of truth in Jesus. Jesus sets us free. But the word of the Lord sets us free too, because it too is true. The Word of God says in Psalm 119, 160, that the sum of your Word is truth. You put all the Word of God together and it's true. God has been so gracious to give us His Word. How are we 
as 21 century, 21st century people set free. What is the way we're set free? Romans 8, 1 and 2 helps us here. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has set us free. Amazingly so. So that whereas we were subject to sin, our own selfishness, we were subject also to death. It's the law of sin which issues in death. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. Spiritual death, physical death too. But the spiritual aspect is even more gruesome than the thought of physical death. But we can be free of sin in this life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what Paul was getting at there? When he chose the word condemnation from the legal system of Rome, from the courtroom of Rome, he was using a word which was reserved only for people who had committed a crime punishable by death. And what that says to us before we were set free from the law of sin and death, by the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ, we were condemned. We were on a collision course for eternal destruction. Two words that don't even go together that are used by Paul in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But amazingly, the Lord has delivered us from that in Christ. And the fear of death, the fear of death is ominous. Some of you are afraid of dying. Not the physical experience, nobody likes to think about that, but what lies beyond when we have to stand before a holy God and give an answer for our lives, that is frightening and rightly so. Were it not for the fact that Jesus is the Son who makes us free. And if He's made us free, we are free indeed. Free of fear of death. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, the writer talks about how Jesus became a partaker of flesh and blood in order that He might deliver us from the power of the one who had control, in a sense, over that death, namely the devil. He destroyed the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. And He removed the need for fear. Because we have one who overcame death. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is fascinating. At the conclusion of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically what Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, because you are Christ's and Christ's is God's, then all is yours. And he included in that life is yours and death is yours. All is ours because we're in Christ. Death is no longer able to control us. We've been freed from that fear because of Jesus' work for us on the cross and in raising from the dead. Well, let's spend the remaining moments we have considering the steps to liberation. You want emancipation? You want freedom? I do. I want to know what those steps are. Here's the first step. 
It's not specifically mentioned. It's strongly suggested, suggested in verse 35 of our passage. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Paul picks up this idea in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says in verse 19, to the believers who are coming out of a Gentile background, in particular non-Jewish background, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. In other words, you have become a part of the family of God. And you know how we got there? This is the first step. It predates history. It predates matter. It was designed by God in counsel with Jesus, the God-man, and with the Holy Spirit. And this was what they decided. I'm going to adopt some people into my family. We read it in Ephesians chapter 1. God shows us in Christ when? Before the creation of the world. For what? To be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted through His Son, Jesus Christ. So this verse, this statement which Jesus makes in verse 35 of John 8, the slave does not remain in the house forever. In other words, if you're a slave to sin, you're benefiting in this world by what is called common grace. God's sunshine shines on you as well as those who are already in His family. His rain falls on you just like it falls on those who are in His family. But there's coming a day if you do not come to know the Lord, if you do not trust in Jesus Christ, then that's all ending. You won't be in the house. But the Son remains forever. Now, I have two children, both of whom are adopted. They had no say-so into whether they were adopted. My wife and I had the great privilege of adopting my son Josh and my son Sarah, and they came to live with us both at the same age, not the same time. Three years separates them in age. My son will be 40 years old this week. It's hard to imagine. They came to us because we initiated the process of adopting them. God thinks of us this way. He adopted us if we know Him. He adopted us. It was His good pleasure. Did you read it? As we read Ephesians 1, it was His pleasure that He would adopt us. What does that say about you and me? It says we are significant. You are no accident. There are no accidental conceptions. There are no accidental births. God is in it from the beginning. God creates life at the moment of conception. A child is a human being at that moment. And God has a plan for every person whom He creates. He is that kind of God. He adopted you. If you're adopted, praise the Lord. Here's the second step. Redemption. We were redempted, redeemed rather, by the Son. We are adopted by the Father. Before time, we are redeemed by the Son of God in time. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, the Scripture talks about in Christ we have been redeemed through His blood. When Christ was on the cross, He paid for your sin 
and my sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. And then it goes on to say he forgave all of our sins. How many? All of them. Every last sin you have committed or will commit was paid for by Jesus Christ if you know him. If you are a person of the truth, you've heard his voice and you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, the writer says in verse 10, we know love by this, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now, what in the world does the word propitiation mean? It means Jesus became the place where God poured out all of his wrath for your sin. That's what it means. And my sin. And the sin of the world. That's what he says, the writer of John's, 1 John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Redemption. Thank God for his redeeming work. So the first step is adoption by God the Father. The second step in this process of being freed is redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. The third step is recognition on our part that we are slaves to sin. It's hard for us to admit we're wrong. Is there anybody in here besides me who has a very difficult, difficult time saying I'm wrong? Anybody? I bet there are even more present who have a difficult time saying, you, you can't even, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting out of my mouth. <laughs> Forgive me. I know some people who are fine people. I believe they're Christians. But they can't say I'm wrong. They're always right. They cover themselves up and they try never to admit when they're wrong. That's sad. Because they keep themselves from a place of transparency and then also a place of the best kind of relationship to the Lord. Look at verse 33. When Jesus has said, If you abide in me, in my word rather, then you are truly disciples of mine. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. It made these folks mad. We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Well, that was not true. Their ancestors had spent four centuries in slavery in Egypt. Other ancestors had been exiled by the Assyrians. Others taken for 70 years into exile in Babylon. The Greeks had ruled over them at the very time that they make this statement, Rome was ruling over them. So probably they knew that. They weren't making comments about political enslavement. They were talking about in themselves they weren't slaves. After all, they were Abraham's offspring. What were they saying? My heritage, my bloodline makes me a person who is not a slave to sin. I have actually had people to whom I have had the privilege of witnessing tell me, you know, I don't think I've sinned. Wow. They're hoodwinked, aren't they? The Bible says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The presence of the truth in the person of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of truth in our lives will pinpoint sin in your life and you will know it 
when you sin. And you will respond in the right way by confessing and repenting of that sin. Recognition of our enslavement. Here's the fourth step. Reception of the truth. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, and then let's look again at their reaction to the suggestion that they were slaves of any sort. In verse 33, we are Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. They didn't like it, did they? It incensed them. So, were they really believers? That second group. That could be debated, but I don't think they are. There are two different groups of people being referred to by the Gospel writer. In verse 30, notice the language. Let me look at it with you again and look at it very carefully. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And the word in obviously translates a preposition, which literally means, as we've looked at the Gospel of John when it's used, most often it means into him. They believed into him. It's the idea that's conveyed in John 1.12. But as many as received him, talking about Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How do we become children of God? We receive him. We trust him. That's what believing in him amounts to. It means moving toward him and entrusting our lives to him completely, giving him control of our lives. So these People, in verse 30, they were true believers. But in verse 31, this explains it. It's a very important distinction which was in the mind of John the Gospel writer, as we're going to see. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Notice the word in is missing. And it's not simply missing in the English translations. In fact, some of the English translations insert the word in, and it makes it contradictory. But when you look at it in the original language, what you see, there is no in there. It's just believed him. They had intellectual assent. Do you know it's possible to believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? He was born of a virgin. Believe that he died for your sin. Believe that he was raised from the dead. Believe that he ascended to heaven. Believe that he's taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Believe that Jesus is coming again. You can believe that. And many more things about Jesus and not really know him because you've believed about him, not in him, not into him. You have not received the truth. You have not trusted him. Let's go now to the last step to freedom. Let's rehearse the first four. Adoption by God the Father. Redemption by Jesus the Son. Recognition of our enslavement to sin. And reception of the truth. That would be Jesus Christ. Here's the last one. Authentication of the truth. Let's look again at what are arguably the two most important parts of this text. Let's look again at verses 31 and 32. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. 
Let's just use a little logic here. This is an if-then statement. So if I abide in the word of Jesus, I'm really his disciple. The reverse would also be true, wouldn't it? If I don't abide in his word, then I'm a fake disciple. That's what it says, isn't it? So here's a very important question. What does it mean to abide? What does the word abide mean? It means to dwell in. It means to settle down in. It means to make your home in. Are you a person who has a hunger? You may not even know how to go about it, but you have a desire and you act on that desire to spend time settling down in the Word of Jesus. Do you love to listen to Jesus? It's interesting that when God spoke to those apostles who accompanied Jesus, three of them, Peter, James, and John, to the Mount of Transfiguration, as we describe it, he said this, among other things, he said, listen to my son. That was the order he gave. Listen to it. And then when Jesus is talking about who his true brothers are, when his brothers had come and thought he was loony and was trying to get him to quit embarrassing the family and come home and quit all this nonsense about his being the Messiah, he said when they were outdoors and word got to him indoors where he was teaching, they were there and they wanted him to talk to him. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he must have gestured as he said the last thing, the person who listens to God's Word and acts on it, that is a person who is my sibling. That's who my mother is. The will of God. Someone who does the will of God. So abiding in His Word, that requires spending time in the Word, listening to His words. One thing we can be sure of is when we pick the book up and we read the Gospels, when we read the things that Jesus said, we can count on that. That's the Word of Christ. No doubt about it. Do you love to eat the Word of God? Is it a delight to you like it was to Jeremiah the great prophet? And when we do that, we, this abiding idea, abiding in His Word, is not simply confined to studying the Bible. A lot of people just love to study, 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 study without any reference to doing the Word of God, applying it. We're not to be simply hearers of the Word of God. We're to do the Word of God. We're to do that privately. We're to do it publicly. You're doing it today publicly. You're coming to hopefully hear the Word of Christ. And that's why we gather together. Now, here's another part that helps me and will also help you if you do not have it, to help you to abide. Find some other people who are doing the same thing. You can't do it alone. That's why the Bible says, let us spur one another on to love and good deeds and let us not giving up, give up meeting as some are in the habit of doing and all the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that your heart may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the encouragement is find some people who fear God and Make them your traveling companions in life. And together, pursue the Lord. Get some people who can help you. Do you remember when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb? We're going to encounter this in the 11th chapter of John if we ever get there. Do you remember what happened? He responded, 
But he was mummified, sort of, and he just kind of came out like this. And what did Jesus tell the people? Take those strips of cloth off of him. He needs help. Do you know we who are further along have been called to help other would-be disciples? We need to help get some of that stuff off. All that stuff that was corrupted. That's what God's called us to do. What about when Paul was intercepted by Jesus on his way to kill Christians in Damascus? He had a writ that gave him legal authority to do that. And he was blinded, and what did God do? He spoke to a man named Ananias, and what did Ananias do? He went and he prayed over him. Sight was restored. He helped him. That's our calling, to help those brothers and sisters who are new in the faith, to help them to grow in the Lord. We need each other. The church by its very nature is characterized by this. We're to continue all of our lives to abide in the Lord. School's never out, and I'm so grateful it's not, because we get to go to the Lord. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. His words are life. His Word innervates us and energizes us so that we can accomplish His purpose for us in this life. It's great to have a purpose, isn't it? When I wake up in the morning, I've got purpose. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I have been adopted as a child of God and He chose me in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy. That simply means to be set apart for His use. That day, every day that was ordained for David was ordained and was written in God's book. I claim that for myself too. Every day. Every day for you and me. That's our privilege. Well, let me try to draw this to a close. When Jesus is teaching us how to pray, He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that last part's what I want to settle in on for a couple more minutes. Your kingdom, Lord, come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you remember when it's recorded in Luke 17, 20 and 21 when some people came to Jesus and they asked Him, where is your kingdom? And He said, my kingdom is in the midst of you. Really what it says, my kingdom is in you. He has come to reside in us. And wherever you and I go, when we go from this place today, maybe you're going home today, part of the kingdom of God is moving from here to there if you have Jesus in your life. If you go out to eat and you encounter a waiter or a server, are there people there? Part of the kingdom of God is going where you're going. Whatever you and I do, if we know Jesus, the kingdom of God is within us and what the Lord wants to do. He wants to influence that area, that environment. Do you know how we can be an answer to the problems in this nation is to be men and women who truly abide in the Word of Jesus and we're truly disciples of His. And we don't clock out when we leave church. We are on the clock all the time 
And what a wonderful calling we have to make a difference, not just for time, but for eternity. This number of people in this room, if each one of us, each one of us had this heart to be this kind of follower of Jesus, this city would be changed in a year. Just this few people. If we have that heart. We're going to treat people differently. We're going to treat them as if Jesus was treating them because He will be treating them through us. It's awesome to think about, isn't it? Your kingdom come on earth, Lord. My part of the earth that I occupy. Your kingdom come right here. Wherever I walk, Lord, may it come. May it come. That's a prayer He'll answer. He'll use you. He'll use me every day if we'll offer ourselves for that. I finished with this illustration. On the 1st of January, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signed into law an executive order. It is known as the Emancipation Proclamation. The war was still raging between the North and the South. And there were still 3.5 million to 4 million people enslaved in the South. But by that stroke of the pen, they were legally set free. There still had to be some liberation work, though, for that to actually happen. Some were able to escape, perhaps in the Underground Railroad that Harriet Tubman and her associates conducted. But more had to be liberated by sacrificing their lives to liberate those slaves. I was thinking about this in relationship to us, how our Father signed with the blood of Jesus Christ a great emancipation proclamation for you and me. And He has enlisted us to join hands with the Holy Spirit to be people who share the Gospel. Do you know why the devil hates evangelism worse than anything else? It's because he knows that his end will come when the last person who has been designated to be born again is born again. When the Gospel has been preached to all peoples, then the end will come. And the devil will keep you and me from sharing Christ with people. He'll do whatever he can because he knows his future depends upon our cowering before his intimidation. But what God has given us is not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he wants to use us as we join hands and we go into battle, as it were, remembering our struggles, not against flesh and blood. It's not against a Republican. It's not against a Democratic, Democrat or a Libertarian. Look, it's against the powers of evil. And we have the power to break that chain of evil that makes people slaves to sin. We can't save them, but Jesus can. And we have the power of God, the Gospel, which is able to revolutionize the world. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for this day. Thank You for our freedom as Americans. But more importantly, Lord, we thank You for our freedom in Christ. No matter where we were, maybe we had been born in another nation, maybe in a closed country, as we call it, Myanmar or China, or some other nation that is 
such a tyrannical kind of government, anti-Christ to the hilt. Thank you, Lord, that wherever we are, you live in us. And we want to crown you king so that your kingdom will come in our hearts and in our places of living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.